You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. All right, grab your Bible, and I want you to turn to the Italian prophet. Anybody know who that is? Yeah, Malachi. Malachi, chapter 4. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 6. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. It would be very helpful if you did it with a paper Bible rather than an app because this illustration does not work with an app. Uh, so if you're sitting next to somebody that's got a Bible, there's one underneath it. We're not actually going to read the verse. What I want you to do is grab that page and hold it in your hands. I don't know about your Bible. Mine has a blank on the back side and then it says New Testament. And that has a blank on the back of it and then we're in Matthew, right? So there's from... Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, to blank page, bold words, New Testament, blank page. If you hold those two pages in your hands right there, that represents 400 years of silence. Nothing. No word from God. No thus says the Lord. No, uh, no interaction of... Uh, divine providence and visible, recordable uh, history that is canonical, meaning that it is Scripture-based. Nothing. Silence for 400 years. Uh, The uh, early Protestant writers referred to this as the period... uh, Uh, of the silence or the intertestamental period, the period between the testaments uh, within the uh, uh, Catholic Church and the um, Orthodox Church they refer to it as the deuterocanonical period uh, meaning if you ever pick up a Catholic Bible and you flip through it, it has some extra books written in it and those books were written in this time period the Jews did not consider them to be uh, Old Testament scriptures and the the early church did not consider them to be uh, New Testament scriptures so they were uh, admitted until the third century uh, and uh, in them they are they're good books there's nothing wrong with them there is some history that is described in them uh, but as far as thus says the Lord kind of scripture it's 400 years of silence think about 400 years with me they oftentimes say you know uh, Europeans and Americans just don't understand each other because if you go to Europe a hundred miles is a long ways Uh, And if you go to America, a hundred years is a long time. But if you go to Europe, a hundred years is real short. And in America, we're not even to Fairbanks at a hundred miles, right? So thinking of 400 years ago, that's a little bit of difference. There's a little bit of stuff that's changed, right? Ashley, off the top. Where's Ashley? Nursery. Oh, she's doing nursery. We don't have another history teacher. So I tell you, what's, what was going on 400 years ago? Huh? Yeah, some college, some people in some funny hats that were selling oatmeal. If you don't get it, the, the Puritan people. Uh, getting off some boats, cutting down trees, trying to start a new colony. 
Indigenous peoples across the United States fully fluent in their language. Everything was normal. Fast forward 400 years and we have internet and Bitcoin and every. I mean, like it just can't. You cannot get more different in 400 years. And to think about the reality that at the close of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, 400 years of God not sending a prophet, God not giving a vision. God not performing some dramatic miracle to redeem and save His people out of a a people group. It's why when we end the Old Testament and we flip to the New Testament and we read of the Jewish structure and the way the temple was going and the conflicts between Sadducees and Pharisees and we're going like, wait, where did all of that stuff come from? We've been going through a series um, called Redemption Story, kind of taking a 30,000 foot view of Scripture and what it is that God has done throughout history in His redemptive processes, starting with Adam and showing how in Adam all sinned, all fell. Um, So the the truth of Romans that says uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is true and that shows up from the very beginning. It starts out uh, that we get messed up early on. Then we took a look at Abraham that God is a covenant maker, that God makes a promise. And not only does God make a promise, but He says, I will accomplish things and I will make it so that you will accomplish your part of this covenant promise. It's an incredible reality. Then we took a look at Moses and the giving of the law and asking the question, what are we supposed to do with all this law that exists in the Old Testament and how does that apply to us and all of those kind of things and the reality and the reminder that the law of God was given to show us our deep and desperate need for God. Then we took a look at the kingdom. We looked at as God established the nation of Israel that they were to be set apart, that they were to be a different, a kingdom of priests if you will, an example to the world and of course they did a very very poor job of that. It was very short lived uh, in anything that could resemble anything looking like what God had said about how that was intended to be. And then last week Martin took a look at the prophets and this period where God sent uh, prophets again and again and again to boldly declare, thus says the Lord, this is the reality of who I am and what I have accomplished. And at the end of all of that, this huge narrative of Old Testament, and it seems like this big crescendo and then all of a sudden, silence. 400 years of silence. Now, it wasn't like nothing was happening for 400 years. It was just 400 years of God not stepping in and saying anything. The conclusion of the Old Testament, Testament, we find the, uh, the nation of Israel, they have been brought back out of Babylonian captivity, restored uh, into their nation, and they are under Persian rule. The thumb of of Persia is on top of them. They are not a sovereign nation. They are under the rule of the Persians. The Persians are then um, uh, conquered by the Greeks, specifically Alexander the Great. He comes over and he takes all of the territories that was Persia and brings it under his purview. When he dies, it's given to the Seleucids, uh, these Egyptian generals that he had, and they divide it up, but it is still under Greek rule. Then there's a brief period of time at which the, uh, the, the Jewish peoples rebelled. They sought to liberate themselves from their oppressors. In fact, there were uh, things that took place that looked like they could have even fulfilled some of the stuff specifically spoken of of the prophet Daniel that says, when you see the day, 
when the, uh, the uh, abomination that causes desecration enters into the temple, it was in that period when those generals came in and slaughtered pigs upon the altar of God as an affront against Israel. And in the midst of all of that, there was uh, uh, two brothers uh, by the, with the, the name Maccabees that stepped up and caused a revolution and a revolt. And they conquered this, they drove out their oppressors, and for a very brief period of time, about two generations, they had very tense control over their nation. But then came the war machine of the Romans. And in the midst of the war machine of the Romans, nobody stood a chance. They marched in and took over everything and established what became known today as the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. Which didn't feel like a lot of peace, it just felt like a lot of terror. And it was in this period of silence, 400 years, think how many, if a generation is every 20 years, right? So we're we're thinking of, uh, you know, the what was called the Great Generation, the World War II generation. They're about to be gone. There's not many of them left, right? Then you have the Boomer generation, those that were born to them. Then you got us Gen Xers that get forgotten in every single meme that exists out there, right? It's always the Millennials fighting the, I mean, the uh, the Boomers fighting the Millennials, and then the Gen Z just going like, whatever, I hate my life, right? Uh, and we're going like, what are the Gen Xers doing? We're we're keeping everything working. That's what we're that's what we're doing, right? But every twenty years, right? You got a generation of people. Four hundred years every twenty. That's a lot of generations. That's a lot of lives. The people living their entire life, never hearing the prophets, never seeing the miracles, never seeing any of those kind of things, and again and again and again, saying, "Okay, I guess we're Jewish. I guess that's what we are." And in the midst of all of that challenge. The silence of God. Have you ever experienced the silence of God? When it seems like your prayers hit the ceiling and nothing else? When the weight of the world is on your shoulders and all you wish you could do is just hand it over to Jesus and say, please, please, take this from me. I don't want to bear this anymore. I don't want to be in the midst of this. And what you get back is silence. Aside from the Psalms, one of the most dramatic um, statements of this that I've ever read was by C.S. Lewis uh, in his book uh, titled A Grief Observed. He didn't write it intentionally to be published. It was his own uh, journey of grief at the death of his wife who died of cancer. Uh, and uh, he wrote, and it's, if you read it, it's just daily journal entries, and it's this emotional roller coaster, which is the truth of grief, right? We always, a lot of people talk about grief being like a, you know, this, this, you go from this to this, and it's never like that. It's just your, it's a ping pong machine, right? You're all, you know, one day you're in, you're in acceptance, and the next day you're in anger, and the next day you're in, uh, you know, trying to, uh, uh, bargain, and all of these kind of things, and back and forth, and away you go. And C.S. Lewis wrote in his book as he was processing the reality of this and the, the reality of the silence of God. He said, Meanwhile, where is God? This is the most dis- disquieting symptoms of my grief. 
When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing of Him, so happy that you are tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There is no lights in the window. It may be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is He so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so absent a help in our time of trouble? And if you found yourself in a moment of the dark night of the soul, in deep grief and in deep prayer, you know exactly what C.S. Lewis is speaking of. And it's in that silence that I want to talk this morning. Because oftentimes we talk about Christianity in terms of the good and the happy, but I appreciated Martin bringing up the reality of this song, of saying, how do we sing the joy of this song, the expectation of this song, in the reality that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that do not experience the safety, the luxury, the comfort that we find ourselves in today? How do we hold fast to the truths of God in the midst of moments when God feels absent from us. It's one of the reasons why I love the Scriptures so much because they, they don't omit this. They don't forget this. It doesn't paint this picture of the reality of God as something that it is not. In fact, in Psalm chapter 22, it is a familiar passage of Scripture, but it is a song of praise that is a cry of anguish. And it might sound familiar to you. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh you who are enthroned on the, on the praises of, of Israel. In our or in you our fathers trusted. They trusted you and deliver, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. And in you they trusted and were not disappointed. The reality of the silence of God is that in the midst of those things we cry out the truth of our emotion. God, I can't feel you. I can't reach out and grab you. I can't understand this. And yet, he says here, yet you are holy. In you our fathers trusted. To you they cried out and you, or in you they trusted and they were not disappointed. The reality of the past anchors in the present the reality of the future. When we think about the intertestamental period, this period of 400 years of silence, and again we read the end of the Old Testament and we read the New Testament, and the, the culture of Jewishness looks so vastly different 
Of course, in the Old Testament, there is the temple worship and the the presence of there. uh, And we see as Babylon comes in and destroys Solomon's temple and they're carried off into exile and they bring back the reality of uh, the the people coming back in. And you've got Nehemiah rebuilding the wall and reestablishing the temple and all of those kind of things. But then when we get to the New Testament, there's this magnificent temple that they're worshiping in huge, sprawling, uh, gargantuan structure. It dwarfed the size of Solomon's temple. And we hear of these other groups that are leading, not priests, but rather scribes. Human copying machines are the ones that are teaching the Scriptures in what are called synagogues, these gatherings of Jewish people across the, the Roman world. And we ask the question, how did we get to that? And the answer of that, I think, is pointed for us as we think about the silence of God in saying that when God is silent and when the world is in chaos, we do what we do to try to control what we think we can control. When things seem out of control, we look to the things to try to control. There were four groups that were established and three of them will probably sound familiar to you if you've read much of the Bible. One of them will sound odd, but I'll tell you the story of them and you'll go, ah, I've heard of that before. These four groups emerged during the intertestamental period and became, in Jesus' day, the defining aspects of the leadership or the public image of the Jewish people. The first of those that you are probably very familiar with are known as the Pharisees. There was a, uh, an Old Testament character, there's a book of the Bible named uh, of him by the name of Ezra. And Ezra was a contemporary of Nehemiah. He came back into the, after the Babylonian captivity and there was this rediscovery of the Scriptures, a rediscovery of the Torah. They had been brought to Babylon. They had been immersed in that culture. Uh, they were being forced to take on Babylonian names and lose their identity, lose their personhood, lose their culture as a Jewish or Hebrew peoples and identify with that. When they were brought back in, many of them had married off into other uh, people groups and things like that in Ezra as they began to read the Scriptures, read Deuteronomy, read what it said. They said, we do not align with this. This does not look like who we are. We need to do it. And Ezra is one of those that is credited as one of the first Pharisees. Now, oftentimes when we use the term Pharisee, we use it in a term that is negative because of the conflict that existed with Jesus. But what the Pharisees were was they were a political and ideological group that was highly conservative and believed two things to be absolute. They believed that the written Scripture, the written Torah, was the absolute truth of God that they were to live and conform their lives to. But simultaneously, that was what is known as the written law, they also believed what was known as the oral law. And it was the idea that from the time of Moses, the things that were written of in the Scriptures, the the Ten Commandments and uh, Numbers and Leviticus and all of those kind of things, that there were sermons and talks and and, uh, understandings that the priests had wrestled with those things, and they began to share those 
oral laws down from generation to generation. They were not written, but they were taught and talked about uh, much in the same way that when we think of if you come from a theological tradition, right? If you, if you come from maybe a charismatic background or you come from a reformed background or whatever kind of church background you come from, there are certain elements of that that look and sound uh, different from others. But you go, how did you get this way? Well, this is just the way that it has been done. Right, And every church you ever step into, you say, why do you do it this way? And you go, I don't know, this is just the way that it's been done. And some of those things might be written down in formal things like bylaws, but a lot of it's just, like, there's nothing in Galena Bible Church's policy that we have, we have potluck every single Sunday. But I can guarantee you, if I stood up one Sunday and said, we are no longer going to have potluck, I would have some people in the church that would probably start a new church, right? Because it is just so ingrained that this is what we do. This is this is Galena Bible Church. This is how we this is how we roll. And this is how the Pharisees operated. So when you hear things in the New Testament like uh, you know them them saying uh, you can't work on the Sabbath. And what is work? Well, that means you can't carry anything more than three dried figs. Anything more than that is considered work. And you go, where in the world did they get that idea from? Or all the other things that we hear about the Pharisees talking about, this was all considered the oral law. The teachings of the rabbis as it went down from the years. And so it became law upon law, teaching upon teaching, sermon upon sermon, dogma upon dogma, such that every aspect of life was intended to guard against breaking the law of God. And so Jesus said to a group like this, He says, Man, you guys are so good at this stuff. You tithe on your mint and your julep, your garden plants but you've forgotten the greater things of love and mercy and forgiveness. They got so bound up in what they could control, which was knowledge and rules. If I can make these things concrete enough, I can control it. And so the Pharisees imparted that. The Pharisees took on the role of scribes. Scribes were literally human Xerox machines. They would sit down and they would transcribe and write the Scriptures, uh, write the Old Testament, make copies of it, along with other things. They were very educated. In our day, they would be considered the equivalent of a PhD. To be a Pharisee, to be actually categorized as that is a title that you can bear of yourself. You can wear uh, particular Jewish garments that signify that you are a Pharisee. meant that you had to have memorized verbatim the whole Old Testament. That you could quote it yourself. That's kind of nuts to think about. And why is it that that grew out of it? Well, again, in the, in the period from Ezra until Jesus, there is constant conflict, constant upheaval. When you think of the Persians and you get maybe a picture in your mind of what the Persians were like, uh, eccentric and, uh, um, you know, corrupt in a number of ways, very uh, worldly or worldly pleasure-oriented that stood in stark contrast to the Scriptures and stark contrast to what those were. And that influence began to push into the places where Persia had. And so they began to self-identify and say, if you are a Jew, you need to live this way. And they hold, held fast to that and protected themselves in such a way uh, as to push that away. 
Of course, when the Greeks came in, we know much about the, the, uh, the culture of the Greeks and how that uh, made influence into the, uh, into the world. Uh, and Greek thought, as it invaded Jewish thought, the changing of that created a term called Hellenistic thought or Hellenistic Jews. And there was this cultural rift that began of people that thought as Jews and people that thought as Greeks and the tension that existed in that. And the Pharisees guarded against that and said, no, 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 this is the Scriptures, this is what it is, we hold fast to this. And even up until the time of the Romans, they wanted as the Jews were scattered across the world... In that peace of Rome, it was the safest time in human history to travel across borders. And Jews began to scatter abroad. And so they began to be farther and farther away from the temple. And if they're farther and farther away from the temple, then the priests cannot instruct them. So who's going to teach the next generation? Well, we have these guys that have read the Scriptures a whole lot because they've copied them and copied them and copied them. And so then the teaching of the law transition from the role of the priest to the role of the scribe. And so Pharisees ran the synagogue scattered across the nation and across the the kingdom. They were afraid in God's silence of the influence of the world into them and so they controlled what they could. They controlled the law and legalism and they held the people in a chokehold and themselves in a chokehold that ultimately did not lead to life. The second group of people you're probably familiar with uh, are known as the Sadducees. And if you ever ask the question of what's the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee, the old joke is the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe that there was anything that came after. They were not atheists. They obviously they believed in God, but they did not believe that there was anything that came afterwards. When they read Sheol in the Old Testament, when they read, read, read the pit, the grave, they just believed that was it. There was no punishment in afterlife. There was no prize in afterlife. It was just death. And the righteous and the unrighteous both went to that place. The Sadducees rejected the oral law. They believed only in the written law. They did not adhere to any of those extra things. They did not adhere to the supernatural. They did not uh, agree with angels and demons and conflicts and heaven and hell and resurrection and any of those kind of things. Anything that seemed supernatural, it was just a concrete form of life for them as it was given to them in the Scriptures. They were a group that did very much embrace Hellenism or Greek thought, philosophy, Stoicism. And as a result of that, when they began to embrace that, the last group that was in charge of them before Rome came in and took over that were Greek city-states that held that. And so the Sadducees retained ownership or leadership within the temple system. When the, the, the worship of God that had to be done, you could not perform uh, sacrifices outside of the temple. That was strictly forbidden uh, in the Torah and in the commandments of God. If you were going to be reconciled to God, you had to go and give a sacrifice on the altar in that place uh, of the temple and, uh, so that you would be reconciled to God. And the only people that were in charge of that were the Sadducees. They retained leadership in that kind of capacity. 
The Sadducees, uh, their great fear in the silence of God, in those years where God was not, by their means, not moving, not speaking, not acting, was a loss of power. They did not want to lose that. And so the Sadducees were very buddy-buddy, very close with the Roman magistrates. They were the ones that kept that kind of peace. They, they were puppet uh, leaders, if you will, assigned by that. And so you can see these are ones that are working very closely with Rome and identifying more and more with those dynamics versus the Pharisees who did not want to embrace the culture, did not want to be in that kind of place. And you can see where the tension would exist between the two. In the silence of God, the Sadducees uh, were more concerned about losing their position and power than they were actually about the closeness of God and the love of Him. The third group uh, is a group that you uh, have probably heard of also. They were a group known as the Zealots. They arose during the period of the Maccabean period, about 200 years before the birth of Christ. And these were individuals that were extremists in the law. They were very similar to Pharisees. They believed the Scriptures. They believed their identity. But rather than embracing study, they embraced violence. They were functional terrorists. They trained, they studied, uh, they mastered themselves, they were uh, very disciplined in their lives uh, to follow the law and follow the Torah, but they did not train themselves as an army. They trained themselves for guerrilla warfare and terror. Because if they could not control their environment, what they could control was people's fear. And so they stepped into the silence of God where God was not speaking and God was not perceivably moving and they invoked fear into the world. Much to the chagrin of all the other Jewish groups because then they were associated, they're just Jews and these zealots are making the rest of the Jews look bad. And so there were mixed feelings. There was some that were like, yeah, they're doing right. I just wish I was as bold as them. I wish I was as uh, strong as them. I wish I was as uh, you know, energetic as them. And then there were others that were like, I wish they'd just go away. They're causing so much trouble for us. And in the silence of God, they could control fear. And then the final group uh, was a group that we don't actually read of in the Scriptures. They're in the contemporary, they're in the same period of it, but I'll say a phrase and you'll know who I'm talking about. This group of people were known as the Aseans. The Aseans. They were desert people. They were an early form of uh, a, a, a monk, a monastery, if you will. These were people that literally, they believed that the Jewish culture, as it had existed through those periods up until the time of Jesus, had become so corrupt because of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the the influences of those otherworldly entities into their lives that they had corrupted what it meant to be a follower of the Lord in so much and such a dramatic way that they pulled themselves out. They didn't live in cities. They didn't live in towns. They literally moved to a place called Qumran, uh, a, a desert, if you will, with valleys and caves and things like that. And they devoted themselves to the Scriptures. They devoted themselves to daily purity. They would have daily ceremonial washings to purify themselves. Uh, they became very good scribes and copiers. They would study the Torah. They would study the law. And their whole thing in the midst 
midst of this uncontrollable silence of God, when all the world seems to be chaos, the one thing they thought they could control was where they were and their exposure to the world. And they pulled themselves away from that. The reason that you have heard of the ASEANs and the reason that I have heard of the ASEANs is because of a little discovery uh, in the 1960s called the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are scrolls that were found by accident as a shepherd was looking for his one of his lost sheep that had wandered off into this valley and there's all these caves. And as he's walking, he's taking rocks, throwing them into the caves and seeing if he hears a... Bah! And so he knows the sheep's in there. And he throws a rock into a cave and he doesn't hear a sheep. He hears pottery shatter. And he thinks, that's weird. And goes into the cave and he finds these huge earthen vessels that are sealed off and one of them broken. And what he finds inside of it is scrolls. Handwritten scrolls that as researchers painstakingly went through and unpacked those and unrolled those and preserved those, they found that these were the earliest copies of Old Testament Scripture and other writings that we have ever found. One of the remarkable things of that is that uh, those documents, one of, the, one of the accusations against Christianity is that you can't believe Christianity because all Christianity is is a game of telephone. Do you guys know what the game of telephone is? Right? The party game? When you sit in a circle and you say a phrase to your neighbor and then it's long and it's complicated and they're supposed to say it to their neighbor and again and again and again you get to the end and it makes no sense. It doesn't sound anything like what was said at the beginning. The accusation against Christianity is if Christianity was an oral tradition and it was this writing thing, if you have enough generations, these handwritten things, people are going to make mistakes and people are going to add things and people are going to change things. And what the Dead Sea Scrolls did for us is that it gave us an early copy where we could take late manuscripts, handwritten copies, and these earliest manuscripts, and we could compare them and look and see how much have they changed. And what we found is, in no significant way, had they. For a thousand years. That's pretty incredible. The Assyrians knew that God was not speaking, and they knew that the culture was corrupt. They knew that they could not control the world and so what they could control was where they were and who they associated with and they excluded the world and associated only with themselves up until the point where they became extinct. Not existing anymore. As we think about the silence of God and the the issue of control and what that means... The reality of this is that in God's redemptive story, there is a lot of chaos that happens. It's one of the remarkable things, one of the hard things, one of the challenging things that we think about as we think about how God interacts with us. And we go, God, we believe You're good. We know Your story. We've heard Your promises. We've seen Your law. And we've seen You redeem uh, us in the midst of this. So God, how is it that things are still so bad? And what can I control? What can I hold on to? What can I keep fast? Think about the last couple of election cycles. Think about the entire period of the coronavirus. The tension that existed by factions, which is what it was, right? Everything was factioned up, was all about issues of control. Who has control? 
Who gets to say? Who has the voice? And in the midst of chaos and struggle and strife, everybody was looking for something you could control in a world that was out of control. And when you find yourself in those moments, those seasons, those periods of time where it seems like God is silent, you are looking for something you can control. And Jesus stepped into this world with all of these groups, these, all of these ideologies, all of these philosophies, and He did them in such a way, uh, He, he uh, engaged them in such a way as to go, listen, you are not called to control. In fact, He said the exact opposite. He said, if anyone wants to save his life, let him what? Lose it. That doesn't sound like control, does it? What was one of Jesus' favorite sayings to His disciples after they had done something boneheaded or said something boneheaded? Oh, you of little faith. Why? Because in all of those situations, what were they trying to do? Be in control. Rather than resting. How much of your Christian life has been you trying to control anything? Controlling your own will. Controlling your own, uh, your own actions. Controlling the people around you. Controlling your environment. Controlling all of these kind of things. Trying to wrap your hand around and saying, I need to keep it safe. I want to be safe. Is it wrong to want to be safe? Of course not. Is it wrong to want to be happy? Of course not. Is it wrong to not want to grieve? Of course not. This is why the Scriptures give us these laments. We have an entire book of the Bible devoted to the reality of lament. This reality that it is okay to not be okay. And here's the thing that's fascinating to me. God is okay with us looking at Him and saying, God... Why have you left me? Mike and I were talking last night about the book of Job and the, the dynamic of that whole story. And it's just fascinating because it's, it's the story of Job looking at God and saying, Why? And you read the entire book and God never answers. God's answer is not because I'm God like we do as parents, right? Why do I have to do this? Because I said so, right? He doesn't doesn't give an answer because I'm God. He just says, I'm God. The power to control is something that we fight with when it comes to redemption. Even in our own salvation, we think we have some kind of power in it. Power to gain it. Power to lose it. But the reality is, if it is by faith, it is God's doing completely. That He is the one that saves us. He's the one that keeps us safe. He's the one that holds us fast. And this is why in those moments where we anchor our soul to the reality of who He is and what He's done, and we can pray these prayers like this, God, my God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Where have we heard that passage elsewhere? 
This is Jesus. The very words of Jesus. God in the flesh. As we enter into this Easter week and we, we, we realize the reality of the resurrection, the week leading up to it is so profound. Jesus knows what's coming. The view of the cross is there. Nobody else does. And on that Palm Sunday, as Jesus enters in and people are putting their cloaks on the road and laying palm branches and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, the, the kingly statement of a king returning to Jerusalem in victory. is This is, the, this is what any king of Israel, as they came back from battle, they came into Israel, they would shout these, these uh, acclamations of, uh, of victory over them. And as they're shouting all of that, Jesus knows that in just a few short days, there will be the same voices saying, Kill Him! We have no king but Caesar. And as Jesus is in that garden, in that moment, under incredible duress, such stress upon Himself that His capillaries and His skin are rupturing and He's bleeding through His pores as He sweats. And he cries out to God and prays Isaiah's prayer of saying, God, if there is anything else, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, the cup of your wrath towards sin. Yet not my will, your will be done. Do you see the tension that he feels there? He is fully man and wants to control the situation. Wants to be able to put his hands around it and say, I I want to stop it. But He defers that and goes to the cross. Psalm 22 continues on in verse 6. He says, But I am a man, or I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate, they separate with the lip. They wag their head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a raving and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue cleaves to my jaw. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Do you think Jesus did not know what He was saying when He was on the cross saying, My God, My God, why are you silent? He knew. And He knew all of it. He knew the reproach. He knew the shame. He knew the heartache. And the writer of Hebrews says, 
let us fix our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. We are tempted to believe that the silence of God is unique to us. But the silence of God happened to God Himself on the cross. We're not alone in the reality of that. And yet, in the midst of that, God was faithful. And the truth of it is, He's faithful to us too. This morning, my question to you would be this. What are you trying to control that God is asking you to simply have faith in Him about? We ask the question, God, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to marry? What am, I, you know, what, am, what am I supposed to study? What's next in my life? All of these kind of things. And in the midst of all of that, we want answers, right? We want God to speak out loud. But what is it that the Scriptures say? God has already spoken. If you want to hear God's voice, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loudly, read your Bible out loud. God has spoken. His truth is already there. His promises are there. He has already redeemed a people for Himself. And we stand in such an incredible place that the people of Jesus' day did not stand in the fact that they had not yet seen the cross. And we have. Why do I believe in Jesus Christ? I don't believe in Jesus Christ because archaeology builds a, a strong foundation of my understanding of history and all, or, or the, the understanding of any of the, you know, like, what, what, the good principles or any of those kinds. I believe in Jesus Christ because of Him, who He is, what He did. If you take Jesus out of the mix of that, Christianity, Judaism, all of it is nuts. Just nuts. But because of Jesus, His life, death, and resurrection, Him conquering my sin on my behalf, when I thought God was silent, it really was just as if God was taking in a big breath to say to the world, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of God. It really wasn't a period of silence. It was a period where God said, there's literally some geographical and political walls that need to come down such that uh, when it had come to pass or as the writers of Scripture in the New Testament say in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son God couldn't send His Son at the end of the New Testament the world didn't look like it needed to but God formed it in such a way that when Jesus came within a hundred years from Jesus' birth, the Gospel would be preached in all of the world at that time. That's incredible. And it could happen in no other way. We may feel that God is silent. 
but He's not. He asks us to still believe, to still trust, to put our hope in Him, to stop trying to control, but to rest fully in His goodness. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that You are not silent. You've given us Your Word. You've given us the reality of the story upon story upon story of Your work and Your people's lives through the ages. You are at work. Lord, forgive us for those times when we do feel like You are absent. We cry out and we hear nothing and we doubt. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, help us to pray even in those moments. Lord, this is what I want. This is my hope. This is what I'm, I'm longing for. But Lord, not my will. Your will be done. Help grow our faith in this, knowing, Lord, that You have accomplished for us what we could not accomplish on our own. You have redeemed us to Yourself. And for that, Lord, we are eternally grateful. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of people that are Your voice in a world that desperately needs to hear from You. We love You. In Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.